Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thanks. Well, good morning. Yeah. We're going to be in that passage this morning. Lots to talk about there. Um, as you're maybe getting to your getting to that page in your Bible, if you didn't before, I just wanted to celebrate what uh, happened yesterday with the Family Fun Day. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who uh, participated in that. Lots of people serving in it. Lots of people bringing children and grandchildren. We had over a hundred kids here yesterday, um, just kind of doing some different fun things. But we also had uh, we were passing out uh, present, doing presentations of the gospel, and there was uh, like an invitation to next week's Easter service, and just lots of lots of fun things going on. Uh, it held up to its name. It really was a family fun day. Uh, even if it was cold, everything, we, it, was, it was wonderful. So thanks everyone to being part of that and all the praise to Jesus for sure. Um, we are in this passage this morning. Uh, let me just uh, lead us in prayer and we'll get right into it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, yesterday. We, we do celebrate your, uh, your faithfulness through us, Lord. What, a, what an honor to be used by you to touch so many uh, families in our, our local community. We give you the praise for that. We pray that we would have the joy of seeing fruit born uh, from that in terms of uh, visitors and, more importantly, people who had a chance to hear the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe just having it reinforced from play, for other times they've heard it. But uh, just pray that that good seed would take root and, and bear fruit in uh, in many people's lives. And Lord, we thank you now for this text. We pray that you would give us minds to understand it and uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of every single one of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen. They welcomed him like a king. They welcomed him like a king. When Jesus came to Jerusalem for that last time, that last 
trip. He'd taken many trips to Jerusalem before, but when he came to Jerusalem the last time, the people, the city welcomed him like a king. Uh, That's what Palm Sunday is about, and today is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday marks an event that the Bible calls the triumphal entry. Uh, You might remember Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem. He'd probably gone 80, 100 miles from the Galilee region. Uh, He was traveling down to Jerusalem, but he wasn't traveling by himself. He was with hundreds and hundreds, thousands really, of, of other people who were all traveling to Jerusalem for a religious festival. They were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, and so was Jesus. He was going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem with with his disciples. Uh, But Jesus had another goal on that last trip. Uh, He was also going to Jerusalem to die. So he knew what lay ahead of him. He wasn't caught by surprise in any of it. He knew there was a cross waiting for him uh, in just a few days. Uh, But before the people crucified him, they welcomed him like a king. Uh, The palm branches, you're familiar with the story, I'm not going to read it this morning, but the palm branches and the coats that they lay on the ground in front of him, that donkey that he rode into into the city, uh, the people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David and all the rest of it. The whole package together really was a a welcome fit for a king, and and they were right to do so. And one of the key things about the, the triumphal entry is that Jesus formally presents himself as the Messiah. He, he, he really does. For those who had eyes to see it, he presented himself as the ultimate king of Israel, and that's what the Messiah is. And so they were right to welcome him the way they did. Given all of that, it's a little surprising, and usually we stop at the end of the triumphal entry, uh, but, but it, given that he comes as, as king, it's surprising to see what he does next. Because if you look in the, in the Gospels, he, he doesn't do what you'd think he might do. Uh, you would think, having just presented himself as a king, that he would go to a palace. That's what a king ought to do. He ought to go to a, a center of political power. And there were several logical places to go. If he wanted to go present himself, he could have gone to uh, the, the, the converted palace that Pontius Pilate had made into his headquarters uh, called the, Praetori- the Praetorium. He could have gone there. Uh, he could have gone to Herod's palace. Herod was the Jewish king who kind of was a puppet of the Romans, but Jesus could have gone to Herod's palace. Uh, but he didn't go for a palace. He actually headed straight to a temple the temple. He went straight to the Jewish temple. That was his first stop when he got to Jerusalem. And his first task was to clean the place out. Do you remember the story of the three of the gospels? Tell us about it. Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem and he, he, he went straight to, to the temple and he began to clear out all the merchants. There's all these merchants who had set up shop and they, they were uh, selling people the sacrifices that they needed at marked up prices. That's basically the problem with what they were doing. And then on top of that, they were, they were cheating people on the exchange rate because you couldn't make pay for your, you couldn't pay your, your temple tax with a normal coin. You had to pay it with special coins and the markup was ridiculous. And so there were all of these merchants and these sellers who were basically hawking a profit on, on the backs of God's people as they came to worship their God. And Jesus comes in and he, he starts literally flipping over the tables and saying, you guys can't do this anymore. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a house for, of, of your prophet. And, and under the old covenant, really what he's presenting himself there as is, is a priest, right? A priest goes to the temple. And, and if you think about it, under the old covenant, those two offices were separate. King and, and, and priest were two separate offices. The high priest and the king were two separate offices. But Jesus is very powerful on, on, on that, what you and I call Palm Sunday. Jesus presents himself first as the ultimate king, and then just a few minutes later, he presents himself as the ultimate high priest. I'm both, Jesus says, and all of this rich symbolism. Uh, 
Uh, we're continuing in Hebrews this morning. We're not looking at a Palm Sunday passage per se, but, but I start there. I start with the triumphal entry to, to give us some of the context for what our passage in Hebrews happens to be about this morning. Um, when, when you look at what Cheryl, and Cheryl read it for us a moment ago, we're going to work through them over the next few minutes, but when you look at that passage, it's not just the author of Hebrews kind of giving us some kind of, you know, here's some cool things I saw about the Old Testament. You know, look at how Jesus fulfills this in the Old Testament. You know, it's not like, like uh, almost like Bible trivia. That's not what he's doing. What he's showing us here in chapter 5 is uh, something that's at the very heart of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's really at the core of what he's about. So yes, he's the ultimate king, and we think about Jesus as that political ruler and the one who will come back someday and reign over the whole earth, and he's, he is all of that, but he's also our ultimate high priest, which is very, very important to us as well. And that brings us to the main point of this passage, the one we're looking at today. Uh, last week, we, we got into this idea of Jesus being perfectly qualified. We actually began to talk about Jesus as our high priest last week. And, and last week's passage, verses 14, 15, and 16 of the previous chapter, uh, focuses more on temptation. So he's, he helps us, uh, he can help us when we're tempted because he's our great high priest. But that's not the whole story. He can also save us from our sin. And now we're really getting to the core of the matter. Uh, I don't know why the author started with temptation. He had his reasons. But now we get to the one we, we, we really think about. Maybe it's because when we get, when he knows we're going to fail in our temptation and we're going to sin. And, and when we do, Jesus saves us. That, that's the, the best part of him being our great high priest. Jesus is also perfectly qualified to save us from our sin. Uh, it's kind of a complicated passage. Have I said that before in Hebrews? Uh, and here's how I want to tackle it this morning. Uh, we're going to look at 10 verses, and I want to break it into two pieces. I just break, it breaks very nicely, actually, into two chunks. Uh, the first four verses in today's passage give us the qualifications for a high priest in general. And so this is important for us to understand. The author is going to show us in verses 1 through 4, four qualifications to be a high priest. And, and this would be under the old covenant. And they may or may not be the ones we would have thought of, but they're the important ones. And then the next six verses, so verses 5 through 10, are going to show us how Jesus meets and exceeds these qualifications, right? So it's two pieces. First, the general qualifications to be a high priest, and then second, how Jesus meets and surpasses those qualifications, and therefore is not just another high priest, he's our great high priest. He's the greatest high priest of all. So, so let's get into the text. Let me, let me do my best to show you this. We'll start with uh, the criteria to be a priest, the priestly criteria uh, under the old covenant. And there are four qualifications, all right? So four qualifications. Uh, number one is that you got to be a human being. You got to be human, right? That's, that's what it tells us in verse one. So let me read verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men uh, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right, so he's talking in the generic. Every high priest is chosen from among men. So this first one probably seems obvious, but sometimes you've got to say the obvious just so it's in front of us. Uh, if a priest is going to represent humans, he's got to be human. That's how it works with a priest. Uh, a cow cannot be a high priest for human beings. Might make a good sacrifice, but not going to qualify as a, as a priest as, because he's, a cow isn't human. Actually, the same thing could be said about angels. Right? We've talked about angels a good bit in the first two chapters. Uh, angels are very powerful and amazing creatures, but an angel could not serve as a high priest for, for a human being. It's got to be a human. 
So you got to be person. You got to be human. You got to be a person to be able to do that. And that's what verse one says. Every high priest is chosen from among men, comes from people. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, some of these move pretty quick. Uh, Number two, the second criteria is that a priest has to offer sacrifices. Right? If you're not offering sacrifices, you're not a priest. That's, that's actually inherent to the definition of what a priest does. He offers, or she, and you know, in kind of other religions, he or she, a priest, is going to offer sacrifices. Uh, this is also in verse 1. It's almost definitional. Uh, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right? That, and, that, and it's explained to us. This is how he acts on behalf of men in relation to God. How does he act on behalf of men in relation to God? Uh, it's, it's sacrifices. It's gifts and sacrifices made to God. And it's this idea of connecting. This is how a priest is going to bridge the gap. We talked about that gap a little bit last week. Uh, it, it has to involve a sacrifice. So there are other things he could do, right? A priest could do a little jig, right? He could do a little dance, and the, the dance might be entertaining, but it has no functional use to, 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 to connect people to God. To, to connect people to God, you've, you've got to have a sacrifice, all right? So that's, again, that's criteria number two. Priest offers sacrifices. Number three, criteria number three, uh, is that a high priest must be appointed by God. He's got to be appointed. Uh, He doesn't get to appoint himself. This is not a volunteer position, right? A priest has to be appointed by God. Uh, We see that in verse 4. It's actually hinted at in verse 1, but verse 4 comes out and tells us, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Points us right straight back to Aaron. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron, the first and great high priest, was, was called by God. So verse 1 says uh, every priest has to be appointed. Verse 4 tells us who does the appointing. Uh, It's God. A high priest doesn't choose himself to be a high priest. God chooses who, who is the high priest. And you actually see this, all of this stuff. I, you know, again, if we had hours, we could go back and see each of these criteria in the Old Covenant. But if you just think about Exodus, when the office of high priest under the Old Covenant is established, when the Aaronic priesthood that we talked about last week, when that gets established, it starts with Aaron. But it wasn't because Aaron volunteered for that position. Right? You can read in Exodus. You know, it wasn't that Moses kind of comes out and he says, say, hey, who wants to be high priest? And Aaron's like, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. Uh, I really like the cool outfit you're going to put together. You know, it, it, that's not what he did at all. God's told Moses up on the mountain, your brother Aaron, he's the one I'm going to use to found this whole thing. And so God chose Aaron. And, and that was a precedent. That's how it was supposed to, that's one of the significance. You might remember Aaron had four sons and two of them were pretty lousy guys and God gets rid of them. Remember, fire comes out of the tabernacle and destroys them. It's kind of an anti-choice, right? God says, no, you two are not doing what I want you to do. You're unelected. And he chooses uh, the two younger sons of, of Aaron to do that. And, and, and that's how it was supposed to go. And, and you can read through the history of Israel. It didn't always work that way. Uh, there ends up being, over the course of centuries, lots of politics gets mixed in. Sometimes it's more politics and connections. Uh, but, but the way it's supposed to work in principle, is the high priest is appointed by God. So that's criteria number three. Priest has got to be, God's got, God's got to pick him. And then number four, the fourth one, is that a high priest must, now this is the longest one, a high priest must deal gently with sinners. And this is the part that's going to connect us back to the stuff we started to get into last week. A high priest must deal gently with sinners because he understands weakness himself. That, that's uh, the one that's talked about in verses two and three. Let me read these two verses. So talking about a high priest in general, still, we haven't gotten to Jesus yet, 
The author says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those, the sins of the people. So very interesting. There's a pastoral aspect to this priestly job because a high priest cannot do his job correctly unless he is dealing gently with the sinners that he's dealing with, right? He's, he's, he deals gently, it says. He's, the, the, the verb here means to, uh, it almost means uh, to master your emotions. So whatever um, he wants to, he's, he's going to master himself. He's not going to har- 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 be harsh with these people or dump on these people. He's going to deal with them gently, it says. And, and look at the strongly way they're described. Uh, the ignorant and the wayward. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. I don't know if you like to think of yourself that way, uh, but that is the biblical description uh, for, for how we are, right? You know, I got to say it. You're a wonderful person. Uh, God loves you very much. Uh, but when it comes to living the way God wants you to live morally, you are ignorant and wayward, the scripture says. And I hope you're not offended by that. So am I. It, it, it's, the, it's the standard description for every single one of us. It actually reminds us of, of Isaiah 53, Right? This is a passage you might read this week, um, just because it's a good one to read in Holy Week leading up to the crucifixion. But Isaiah 53, 6, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, right? there's no exceptions here, each of us has turned to our own way. We're ignorant and wayward. It's, it's Isaiah's description of the same concept. We're, we, each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's, it's universal. That's where we're at. And here's, what he, here's for, for our sake, in Hebrews, the point is that the high priest knows this and remembers this about the people he represents. And he's therefore kind to them. He's gentle with them. He, he doesn't condemn them or treat them harshly. Rather, he's gentle and compassionate. And the reason, right, the reason's very important. The reason he responds this way is that he knows he's in the same boat. That's what you get in verse 2. He can deal gently with them since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And so, and you actually, this was built into the Old Covenant. So if you think back to your Old Testament and how the sacrificial system worked, before a priest could offer a sacrifice for someone else, he always had to offer a sacrifice for himself first. He always before, so if somebody came to the tabernacle and wanted to make a sacrifice for some sins he'd committed, the priest would have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he could offer a sacrifice for that person's sin. And, and, and so there was, it was built into the system. The whole system was built in such a way that the priest was always reminded that he needed God's grace just as much as the person he was helping because he too was, was dealing with his own sin. And so that's number four. A high priest deals gently with sinners because he understands his own need and his own weakness. And so you got those four qualifications. Be human, offer sacrifices, be appointed by God, and deal gently with sinners. Now let's talk about Jesus. Right, so that's the general. Right, the author lays out for us in four verses what the qualifications are. Uh, how, does, how about Jesus? Well, how about Jesus? Well, according to verses 5 through 10, Jesus meets them all. He meets all these criteria, and not just meet them, but surpass them. Because remember, Jesus is greater. It's this big theme running through here. Greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the law, greater than Joshua. Now he's greater than Aaron. Why is he greater than Aaron? Because he not only meets the criteria for the Aaronic priesthood, he's going to exceed it. He surpasses it in all four. So uh, let's talk about Jesus, the Savior's credentials. Number one, Jesus is fully human. 
Jesus is fully human. Are you tired of hearing me say it? <laughs> it's, it's a big theme in the first four chapters, and so I've talked about it a lot in, in the first four chapters of Hebrews. Uh, he's fully human. Uh, that's probably why the author doesn't talk about it in verses 5 through 10. So actually, I'm going to tell you now, of these four criteria I had up on the wall a minute ago, two of them are not in today's text. They're just broader context in Hebrews. So starting with this one, Jesus is fully human. He actually doesn't talk about the full uh, humanity of Jesus in verses 5 through 10, probably because he talked about it so much already. I mean, if we haven't gotten it by this point, you know, it's kind of shrug, you know, go back to the beginning and read over again. It's probably his idea. Uh, you know, we, we could go back. We could go back chapter 2, verse 9. For a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. And, and I did, I think it was a whole sermon about how that means Jesus uh, is, is fully human like us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14, therefore, since, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, remember, we're the children, uh, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Again, Jesus is fully human. Uh, we looked at one of them last week, chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's been tempted as we are in every respect. And we talked about how that's connected directly to the full humanity of Jesus. He was fully God, but also fully human, fully man. And so he meets this first qualification. Jesus is fully human, right? He's fully human. But here's the thing. He's, he's fully human without sin. Remember that from verse 16? He's fully human without sin, which means Jesus is actually a greater human. Who's the greatest human to ever live? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Uh, and working in terms of the definition of humanity as God created us originally to be, Jesus is, the greater, is greater because he was unstained by sin. See, Aaron, you think about the first high priest, Aaron was a pretty godly man. He really was. Aaron was, a, I mean, he, had his, he, he made some pretty big mistakes that we, you know, golden calf, for instance. Uh, but but he, uh, fundamentally, Aaron was a godly, righteous man, but he was not without sin. Only Jesus ever qualified for that. And so Jesus meets and surpasses this first qualification. So Jesus is fully human and even greater. Number two, uh, let's talk about the sacrifices. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, right? And so criteria number two was that you offer a sacrifice. Well, Jesus offered a greater sacrifice. He offered himself. Uh, our author does not spend time on this one either. Not here not in verses 5 through 10, probably because he's going to spend a lot of time on it later in the book. So we're not going to get there this spring, but when we get to chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's the whole point. The whole point of chapters 8 and 9 in Hebrews is that Jesus is not only the great high priest who makes the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice itself. Right? And so he is the greater sacrifice. Probably the, the, the zinger verse, the proof text verse for this is Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, which was the old covenant, but rather by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then two verses later, verse 14 of chapter 9, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. That was the sacrifice. And so did Jesus meet qualification number two? You bet he did. Yes, he did. He offered sacrifices, only one. It was himself, and it was even greater. It was a far greater sacrifice than any that had ever been offered before. So that's the first two. The next two are in today's text, uh, and these, we'll, we'll focus more on these two. Um, number three and number four. So number three, the third criteria, remember, is that the high priest has to be appointed. 
right? So he has to be appointed by God. Well, the author wants us to know Jesus absolutely meets that one too. Absolutely he does. Jesus was definitely appointed by God. And that's the point of verses 5 and 6. He says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also, the appointer says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So a high priest cannot appoint himself. We pick that up from verse 4. Well, Jesus did not appoint himself. The author wants us to see that. Jesus did not exalt himself. He didn't take this honor for himself. If anybody would have been qualified to do so, it's him, the Son of God, right? One of the three persons of the, of the, of the tri, of the, 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 the God, the one and only God, the triune God. Uh, if anyone could have appointed himself, it's him, but he didn't. Instead, he waited for the Father's appointment. Right? So the Father appointed him. And that's where these two psalms come in. You might recognize them because they've both been quoted already in this book. Uh, the first quote is Psalm 2-7. That one's been quoted directly. Uh, the second quote, uh, the one about Melchizedek, comes from Psalm 110, and that's verse 4. He hasn't quoted verse 4 yet, but he quoted quite a bit from Psalm 110 uh, earlier in the book, back in chapter 1. And so both of these, how do these prove anything? Well, they're both messianic psalms. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 were both understood by Jews and right away by the earliest Christians that these, yes, they had context, original context. They were both about the king of Israel and had things to do with the king of Israel. But then more importantly, they looked ahead to something about the Messiah. Psalm 2 is like that. And so is Psalm 110. And so our author grabs he actually is very interesting. He, he grabs um, actual narr- narrative from God. So words of God is what he actually quotes, not the narrator saying God said. He just grabs God's words. And what that does is it reinforces. You know, so, so it's almost like you can hear God's voice speaking. You are my son, and you are the priest I appoint in the order of Melchizedek. And so his point is that God himself, and you get echoes, I don't know if they're intentional or not, but you get echoes of, of the baptism where God says from heaven, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. Uh, God himself appointed Jesus. Uh, let me say one quick word about this guy Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek, such a fun name to say. I'm so glad we get to Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek, you meet him way back in Genesis. You meet him in, I, I should have looked it up. I think it's like Genesis 16, might be 18, somewhere in that, that part of Genesis. Um, and, and you meet him in Genesis. He's talked about eight times, eight times in Hebrews, the name Melchizedek is used. Two of them are in today's passage, but most of them are in chapter seven. So I'm not actually going to say a whole lot about Melchizedek today, because we're going to need to do a whole sermon about Melchizedek when we get to chapter seven. But let me just tell you, uh, kind of, you know, spoiler alert, here's the big deal about Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek represents a priesthood that transcends and surpasses the priesthood of Aaron. That's really why Melchizedek matters in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The priesthood of Melchizedek, we'll learn when we get to chapter 7, came before the priesthood of Aaron. It was before it, and therefore the author is going to reason for for a couple of different reasons. He's going to tell us it is therefore greater. So the Aaronic priesthood is pretty great, but this Melchizedekian priesthood is even greater. And as far as we know, only two people ever sat in that office. It was Melchizedek, and then it was Jesus. And so Jesus is appointed. And so that's actually the point of Melchizedek in this book. And like I say, we'll get to learn more about him in chapter 7. But the point of Melchizedek is that Jesus isn't just appointed to a great priesthood. He's appointed to the greater priesthood. And so again, Jesus is greater. 
In fact, let me just recap that and then before we move into the last part here. Uh, here's what we got so far. Uh, Jesus is a greater human because he never sinned. He's a greater sacrifice because he offered himself. Uh, and he's appointed to a greater priesthood because he belongs not to the order of Aaron, but rather to the order of this guy Melchizedek. So he's, oh boy, is he qualified, right? So number one, number two, number three, check, check, check. He's, he's qualified. Let's look at the next one. Let's look at the last one, right? Number four. The fourth qualification you'll remember is this pastoral one, right? He's got to deal gently with sinners. A high priest of God has to deal gently with sinners because he understands weakness. Well, Jesus meets that one too. And that's what we're told in verses 7 and 8. Uh, Jesus deals de- gently with sinners because Jesus, and now we're going back to some of that stuff we were introduced to last week, verses 14 through 16. Jesus experienced our weakness himself. He experienced it. And as we said last week, he didn't just experience the weakness of living as a human being. He overcame it in terms of that those temptations to sin <clears throat> that we talked about. He didn't just experience them, and he did experience them to the full, but then he, he overcame them, which means Jesus not only knows what it's like to experience human weakness, but he also knows how to overcome it. He knows how to beat it. And that makes him greater. He's not just on the same level as us, because oh, you, know, you and I, when you and I talk about temptation, let's say we have a conversation afterwards, and you say, I'm really tempted by X, and I'm like, yeah, I'm tempted by X too. I know just what you mean. We're on the same level. But Jesus is greater than us because Jesus says, yeah, I experienced that too, and I never gave in. Uh, you know, and, and he's going to use that to then give us. He's going to deal with us gently. He's not going to gloat. He's not going to lord it over us. He's going to deal with us gently because of it. And so again, he's greater. We see all this in verses 7 and 8. Uh, in the days of his flesh, talking about his human life, uh, earthly pre-resurrection life, uh, in the days of his life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So in these verses, our author zeroes in on one specific event in the life of Jesus. Right? One specific event, and he uses this event to tell us something about his whole life. That's why he starts the way he does, in the days of his flesh. So here's what Jesus' earthly life was like. But then he's going to zoom in on one specific event as the, uh, as the example. And the event is the garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And he never actually says it, uh, but I think it's quite clear in the way he describes it that this is what he's talking about, he, especially in the context of the offering of the sacrifice in the context of, of, struggling, with sin, of, of struggling with temptation. Uh, he's talking about what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Holy Week. Uh, let's, let's read that account. I want to take you to, um, and if you want to f- follow along, you can go to Luke chapter 22, or you can just read, uh, or li- listen, I mean, I'll just read it. But I want to read you one of the gospel accounts of what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, and I actually picked the shortest of them, but also because it, uh, it, it, it highlights some of the things he's talking about here. So this is Luke 22, and I'm going to read verses 39 through 44. I'm just going to stop at 44. Here's what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he came out from the Last Supper, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, the place is the Garden of Gethsemane, we know from the other Gospels. When he came to the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Sounds an awful lot like what we're told about in Hebrews 5, uh, verse 7. Uh, He prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. It it fits perfectly. He prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. And he made that prayer. Luke kind of holds it uh, until verse 44. Uh, But he prayed that prayer in agony. So it wasn't some kind of nice, kind of polite, you know, polite half asleep sort of prayer. Uh, He was praying it in agony. Right? The, 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 the sweat like blood. How does our, our passage describe it? Verse 7, with loud cries and tears. And you do. Go, go compare it later on. This week's a great time to do it. Go compare it to Mark's version and Matthew's version. And, and they, they'll emphasize the agony and the struggle in the garden in different ways. If you put them all together, you, you really see it. With, with loud cries and, and tears. It was, it, was, it, was, it was agonizing. It was excruciating there in the garden as he prayed. And here's the thing, if we're not careful, it's easy for us to to misconstrue, to misinterpret the source of his agony, right? It's very easy to do so. After all, we know where this thing is headed, right? We know where it's headed. We know that he is, just a few hours later, going to be beaten mercilessly. He's going to be abused, and then he's going to be crucified. And crucifixion, crucifixion is basically death by torture. That's how crucifixion worked. A A person was tortured to death. We know that's what Jesus uh, was facing there in the garden, right? And, and so when we read this, you know, we, we assume, we, we know the descriptions, we've heard perhaps sermons kind of describing at length kind of how hard and awful it was. And, and so there's this part of us that assumes when Jesus is, is, is agonizing in the garden like that, that he's responding to the anticipation of the physical and emotional trauma of crucifixion. Like that's a very uh, reasonable thing for us to think. And I will say that may well have been part of it. I mean, Jesus, Jesus knew what crucifixion was like. He grew up in an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, uh, they were not chintzy with, uh, the, they were not stingy with, um, with crucifixion. They used it a lot to intimidate the people they ruled over. So Jesus had certainly seen crucifixions over the course of his life. So, so that had to have been in his head. The, the physical and emotional trauma he was about to go through. But here's the thing. He was also bearing an even heavier burden than that. The scriptures tell us this. As awful as all of that would be, he was also bearing the burden of our sin. That's what he's bearing. And that is what almost brings him to the breaking point. It wasn't the burden of crucifixion. It was the burden of our sin. And here's what we have to remember uh, as we think about what he was bearing there. And all of this is helping us understand this fourth point, right? It's very timely as we begin Holy Week, but it's helping us understand this whole idea that he deals gently with us because he experienced our weakness. So my point is, our weakness was laid on him on the cross, but even even earlier, it's laid on him in an anticipatory way in in the cross, uh, excuse me, in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. Because here's the thing. We bear the burden of sin. We know what that's like. We've all experienced it, right? And so when we sin, 
we very often, especially for us as Christians whose, whose consciences are no longer seared, uh, we, f- we know what it's like to feel guilty. We know what it's like to feel ashamed of what we've done, to be embarrassed of something we've done, to, you know, that sense of regret, oh, I wish I could go back and unsay those words or undo that thing. We know what that's like. We know what the experience of sin is like. But we only know it for one person. Right? I've only ever borne the sin directly of, of one person. It's myself. It's my own. And then maybe if a family member sins, you know, maybe there's kind of a secondary sort of experience with them because I love them. But, but really, whose sin have I ever borne? I've only ever borne my own sin. But Jesus, here in the garden, he's experiencing the burden of everyone's sin. That's what he's anticipating. That's what's about to be laid on him. Uh, the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment of the whole human race. Where do I get that? Well, I already, I already read it to you. It's Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I really appreciated how uh, um, one of the commentaries I'm using is written by this guy, Ray Stedman. Uh, he was a pastor and a scholar, and those are the ones that usually get it the best, in my opinion. Uh, here's how Stedman summarizes this point right here. He says, no sinner on earth, no sinner on earth has ever felt the stain, the stain and shame of sin as Jesus did. He understood exactly the same feeling we have when we're angry with ourselves and filled with shame and self-loathing, so much so we can't believe God uh, can do anything, but anything but hate us for our evil. Have you ever been there? Felt so bad about something you've done, you're just like, oh, God must just hate me right now. Jesus knows what that's like, Stedman says. He went the whole way, and he took it not just for one person, but for everyone. He took the full brunt of our sin. By the way, that's what verse 8 is talking about. That's probably a trickiest verse in this passage when it says he learned obedience through what he suffered. That phrasing is a little confusing to our English-speaking minds because learned obedience implies that he used to not know it, right? So he used to be disobedient, and then he got his act together, and he started to be obedient. That's, that's what that language suggests to us, but that is not what that's saying about Jesus. Uh, it's not saying that he used to be disobedient, and then he learned how to obey, it's saying that he, he learned it. He fully experienced what it feels like to want to disobey God, but in his case, to obey anyway. Right? So he, he fully experienced what it feels like to obey God when the flesh doesn't want to obey. I'm, I'll quote Stedman again, shorter this time. Jesus learned obedience, he writes, when every fiber of his being longed to escape. That's what you have in the garden. He had gladly been obedient to the Father all of his life. It was a joy. I delight to do my Father's will, Jesus says. But in Gethsemane, it was hard, excruciatingly hard for Jesus to accept God's will, just as it often seems hard for us. You ever been in that spot where it's hard to do God's will? And maybe you gave in to the temptation, or maybe you withstood, but either way, it was hard that's, the, that's what Jesus learns in the garden. He, he learns that full experience, that full weight, that full burden of how hard it is for human beings to obey the Lord. That's what he felt, and that's why he's so, so qualified to deal with us. He's so qualified to be our high priest. He, he, he does deal gently with us. Uh, we who are ignorant and wayward, right? I, I, I talked about this last week. He doesn't scowl at us over our temptations. His lip does not curl in disgust when we sin. No, the scriptures tell us our Savior is compassionate toward us. 
He's kind, he's patient, he's merciful. He, he treats us with tenderness and encouragement. I'm sure I've used this sort of picture before, but it's so helpful to me personally, you've got to listen to it again. Imagine a parent, right? Imagine a parent and, and your mom or dad, and there they are with, with a little toddler, except she's kind of pre-toddler. She's not toddling yet. She's trying to learn how to toddle. And, and, and there she is, she's, she's just learning how to walk. Right? And, and, but, but when, you know, when there she goes, she takes a little step. And how, how, what's she going to do? She's going to fall. <laughs> right? She's going to fall because we always fall. We always fall when we're learning to walk. It's just how, I, I, I don't think any human beings ever just kind of just stood up and started walking. So it's not, we, we, there's always stumbles. There's always falling. Right? And so she's inevitable. Here's this mom and she's there helping, uh, watching, and she's letting her start to walk. And then she, oh, she falls over on her face. What's mom going to do at that point? Is she going to go all drill sergeant on her? You know, get up, you little weakling. Let's go. Let's, you know, is, is that? No. No, that's never what. No parent would do that. No dad. No mom would do that. No grandparent would do that. No, no, you get down. You're like, all right, you can do it. Come on, let's, let's get up again. You know, here we go. Let's try again. You made it two steps. Let's see if we can go four this time. You know, and, oh, you fell again. I, I, I'm not saying God winks at our sin. He doesn't. Uh, but, but that's his attitude toward us. Right? That, that, that's his attitude toward us. It's that kind of a sense. Because again, I, I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Uh, if, if you who are evil, remember that passage? You know, if your kid asks for bread, are you going to give him a stone? If we who are evil treat our child learning to walk with tenderness and compassion, why would we think that God, who's perfectly good and perfect love, why would we think he would, he would treat us harshly or, or with condemnation? No, he's the high priest who, who treats us gently. He deals gently with us. Uh, in our weakness, uh, not least of all, because he knows it firsthand. He knows firsthand the weakness that we bear. So what do we do with all that? <laughs> what do we do with all of that? Well, the answer is actually from last week's passage. The answer is we draw near. We draw near. It's, it's chapter 4, verse 16. You know that the, uh, the chapter breaks are artificial. I think chapter 4, verse 16 is the response for all this rich theology about Jesus and his qualifications to be our high priest that we get in verses 5 through 10. Right? Since we have such a great high priest, verse 16, we should draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Bring him the weaknesses, bring him the struggles, bring him the temptations. Yes, even bring him the sins. Bring them all to Jesus. That's the point of having such a great high priest. If we draw near to our great high priest, he will help us. He'll help us when we're tempted, he'll pick us up when we fall, and he'll save us from our sins. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God like that. What a God. What a loving, faithful, gracious, kind, and merciful God. Uh, we thank you that you love us so much. We thank you uh, that you um, have proven yourself, Jesus, again and again and again to be um, to be like this text describes, to be a great high priest who is fully qualified, who knows better than we know what it is we're, we're facing, and yet still deals with us gently, with tenderness, with compassion. We thank you for that, and we pray you, praise you. Uh, Lord, we would ask now, I want to pray two kinds of prayers, Lord, as we get, prepare our hearts for, com for communion. Uh, first, prayers of confession. If there is any sin that we've brought uh, unconfessed, uh, that we've been holding back from our great high priest, would you please bring it to mind right now that we might confess it to you, the one who loves us more than we know, uh, that we might uh, receive your cleansing of it and, uh, and let it go. And so just in a few moments of silence, Lord, we just spend time, each of us, in prayer before you.